Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So, I would, the first thing I'd say is the revolution was so much more interesting than what we were taught in grade school, you know, which was the, the red coats versus the embattled farmers. It was that, but it was so much more than that. That's author and historian Woody Holton discussing his new book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and McCausland Professor of History at the University of South Carolina, Woody Holton. And he'll be discussing his new book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. One of the great things you're going to find about this book, and I really hope you can pick it up, is that Woody Holton uses his experience and his expertise to take on a very challenging task. And it's to really reevaluate not just a war, but an era of history. Now, of course, he's come to great fame for his earlier work on Abigail Adams, which won the Bancroft Prize. And he has a very good chance, uh, I think, of uh, having this book be one of the really important books ever written on the revolution. It's a gargantuan task. He said it took over 12 years to write it. But when you read the care and the details and the amount of people who he brings into this story, people who were major players in the revolution, who didn't really have a voice uh, in most popular histories over the last hundred years or so, Liberty is Sweet really stands out as a pivotal book uh, over the last uh, last few years. This is a long interview. We get into a lot of very interesting topics. Every second is worth it uh, because the book is that good. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Woody Holton. Woody Holton. Thank you for joining us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Tell us about your background. So I teach at the University of South Carolina and focus on early American history, especially the revolution, and especially the people that aren't in Trumbull's famous painting of the Declaration of Independence being presented to Congress. That is Native Americans and African-Americans, women, um, but more recently, I've been getting more interested in things like the military conflict of the Revolutionary War. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in my uh, this book that's just come out called Liberty Sweet is integrate the history of the outsiders with the history of the, of the insiders. Woody, you've had tremendous success in the field of history already with some of your previous books. Why did you decide to write this book, an overview of really an entire era of history, now in 2021? 
Well, I decided actually when I started 12 years ago, a lot has changed since then, although I think I've only had more reasons to want to do it as, as, as our own history has evolved over those 12 years, especially as the nation has divided, uh, because I, I, that makes what I had previously decided to do more relevant, uh, because one of my theses, uh, theses is just how divided we were back then as well at the same time that there was a struggle for home rule against the British. There was also a struggle, uh, as one famous historian said, uh, Carl Becker, a struggle over who would rule at home. And so, so there's a sense in which we could talk about the energy that we worry about now that's going into internal conflict among Americans. That energy produced the American Revolution and, and the result uh, of it. So, so I'd say it's become a little bit more relevant than when I started it. When I started it, though, why did I want to do it? Frankly, one reason was um, I've been teaching the revolution for so many years that um, there's there's aspects of it that I've kind of refined and I've got own little clever, I hope clever takes on things. I wanted to present those. Well, one of the things I love about this book is that you show colonial America for what it really was a multi-ethnic patchwork of peoples. Um, who were these people that you give such a powerful voice to in this book? Yeah, um, well, one of the things I am proudest uh, of in the book, um, I, I managed to hire the best, I think, best map maker in this business, Jeff Ward, and he did a, a double spread, that is two-page map of North America, um, east of the Mississippi River, and it shows the colonial boundaries and major towns, but it also shows the Native American boundaries and, and, and Native towns. If you read even what some of the founding fathers said, you kind of get the impression that the Indians didn't have boundaries between, say, the Cherokees and the Creeks and then the Choctaws and Chickasaws, but of course they did. Um, and so it shows their boundaries and their towns, not all, but just a sampling uh, as well as as for the colonists. So, and then I also have a population table, uh, which you know not every reader is going to be thrilled about, but I know as a JAR reader myself that uh, your listeners will be population table that all 26 of the British colonies that there were in 1776, only 13 of which rebelled, but also the other ones like Jamaica and Barbados, which were the real jewels in the British crown as of 1776 because of molasses for making rum. And I have the other uh, uh, colonies, that is Cuba and Martinique and uh, all the colonies in the Caribbean and so forth are run by other countries. So I have their population and broken down by race for the first time. All that amazing three-page population table was prepared under my guidance, but by an undergraduate student here at the University of South Carolina, who just has a real knack for that stuff. So, so I, I feel like the map and the population table are the real introduction to the book because it's a much, much broader canvas and there's a lot more variety in it. And I just think it's, it's, it's a more exciting story when you tell the story of everybody, including, for instance, the one in five Americans who were enslaved. Woody, given my own background, I really appreciated the amount of time and stress you put on the importance of the Seven Years' War. Uh, why was the Seven Years' War so important to understanding the American Revolution? 
Yeah, and I do start with uh, a, an episode that's familiar to everybody listening today, uh, and that is Braddock's defeat on the banks of the Monongahela River on July 9th, 17, or July 9th, 1755. Um, and I would go so far, Brady, as to say, had there been no Seven Years' War, there might not have been an American Revolution. There was a group of historians in the last century who, who made that case by saying, oh, yeah, it was a Seven Years' War that got rid of what they called the Gallic peril, that is, the French. And once the colonists were free of having to worry about the French, they could then feel free to rebel against the British. And as I worked that through, I didn't buy that theory because there's a real sense in which the British colonists did not rebel against the British. It was more Parliament that rebelled against the status quo. If you take somebody like George Washington, uh, who, as you know, really wanted to be a wanted to get a commission in the British Army, he was happy with Virginia's relationship to the British Empire as of, say, 1762. It was Britain, specifically Parliament, that wanted to change things. So we don't need to ask why the colonists rebelled against Britain because there's a sense in which they didn't. There's Parliament that rebelled against them. We got to ask why Parliament did so. And there's lots of grievances that Parliament had that the colonists were constantly provoking wars against the Indians or the colonists smuggled molasses in from places like Jamaica and I mean from uh, from foreign islands like Cuba and Saint-Domingue and Martinique and so forth. But but the other reason that Parliament felt like it this was the time to rebel was the war against the French had been won and Parliament no longer needed the help of its British colonists to defeat the French. And there's a sense in which that was like a starter's pistol. The, 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 the departure of the French was a starter's pistol for the colonists to go take land from the Indians. But more than that, the real initiative that happened around 1762 was Parliament saying, OK, we've got all these grievances against the colonies, the molasses smuggling, the land theft uh, and so forth, the, the printing of paper money uh, and so forth. And we're going to crack down on the colonies. And, and it's really hard for me to imagine, you know, say they had negotiated peace with the French in 1755 and never had that war, never kicked the French out of Canada. I don't think the British would have felt entitled or, or wouldn't, wouldn't have felt like it was safe to challenge their colonists when the, the French were still part of the picture. Woody, in many ways, the revolutionary era is a study in politics, particularly changing politics. How did American politics change after the Seven Years' War? Well, the main thing I would say is, is the anger on the part of the British at the colonists. We talk about there were a lot of ways, and this is true too, but there's a lot of ways in which the colonists got mad at the British, you know, arrogant soldiers um, uh, tearing up people's towns on their way through and, and people being forced to serve in the British army. There was a lot of draft resistance, I mean, as there is in every war, there would be in the Revolutionary War. Um, so yes, the colonists got mad at the British a lot, but the point I want to stress is how angry the British got at the colonists during the Seven Years' War um, because uh, because of all the things they were doing, like smuggling and taking land from the Indians and provoking wars and all that. All these things that I, I, the term I would use is built up resentment because 
the British government was mad at all these things the colonists were doing, but while it needed the colonists' help against the French, it couldn't crack down on them. And so that's why the real moment for me is February 10th, 1763, when the British signed a peace treaty with the French, got them out of the picture except for two tiny islands uh, off of Newfoundland, and then they could really direct themselves at making changes in their relationship to their own colonists in America. Woody, when we look at the 1760s, we see a lot of people with very real anxieties surrounding America's relationship uh, to Great Britain. But we don't see many people jumping to revolution. Revolution isn't really considered to be uh, a legitimate standpoint in the 1760s. So if they're not talking about rebellion or separation, uh, how are they expressing their, their outrage at this time? Yeah, I think your point there is really, really crucial. And it goes to this issue. I was talking about how there's a sense in which the colonists didn't choose to rebel because all through the 1760s, I like to talk about the four T's, taxes, territory, trade, and treasury bills, which is paper money. In all four of those areas, it was parliament that was rebelling against the status quo. That is, it was parliament that wanted to change things and the colonists who were thrilled with the way things were. I'm talking about the free colonists, of course, enslaved people were not. But the people like George Washington in Virginia or John Hancock in Massachusetts, everything was pretty copacetic in 1762. And once Britain started cracking down on molasses smuggling in 63 and levying taxes in 1764 with the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act in 65 and so forth, these are all ways in which Parliament wants to change the relationship it had with the colonists, and the colonists are resisting change. They are not change agents. They are not seeking change. They are resistors. And I would even use kind of a loaded term from 17th century England. What the colonists wanted right up until 1774 was a restoration. They just wanted to restore the British-American relationship to what it had been in 1762. They were, they were satisfied then. It's Parliament that wasn't, and, and Parliament that wanted to make all these changes. And, and I'm really pushing what I'm calling a stadial view, S-T-A-D-I-A-L view, that is that you really can't understand the, the revolution and the eventual decision for independence on July 2nd, 1736. You can't understand that as a single decision. You've got to see the stages that happened. And I'd say the Seven Years' War is the first stage. That clears the French. And now the second stage is the British seeking all the changes that they sought. And then the third stage is the colonists resisting all those British changes. And as you know, often doing so quite violently, for instance, tarring and feathering customs agents and attacking stamp collectors, burning down or, or disassembling the houses of, of the guys in, in charge of camp, uh, collecting the stamp tax and so forth. So stage three is the colonists not seeking independence, as you said, not rebelling, but seeking to restore the British Empire of 1762. 
And then in response to all of those rebellious things that the colonists did and really culminating on December 16th, 1773 with the Boston Tea Party, in response to all of those restoration efforts on the part of the colonists, that's when the British started to really crack down on the colonists. They'd done some things before, like talked about sending colonists to England for trial. But in 1774, they closed the port of Boston. They passed a quartering act. They totally changed the charter of Massachusetts. Uh, and, and then in 1775, they do much harsher things like intercepting American shipping. They issue an emancipation proclamation in Virginia, the state, the largest, most populous colony, offering enslaved people freedom if they'll fight on the British side. And so I'm not sure, what, I can't remember, I think I'm on stage five here, but we've got the, the British seeking a change, the colonists resisting that change, the British punishing them for that resistance in all of these ways, culminating in Lexington and Concord in the North and this Emancipation Proclamation to the slaves in the South. And it was really those punishments that the British inflicted on the colonists for resisting the things that Parliament had done before that. It's, it's the punishments. If you read the Declaration of Independence, yes, it mentions the original colonial grievances like taxes, but the real focus, the thing that really pushed them over the edge to declare independence, it was these things that Parliament had done to punish the colonists for their earlier resistance to these earlier initiatives of Parliament. Woody, one of the things that that I notice, especially in my survey classes, is that we often distill the revolution down to a series of kind of flashpoint moments. Uh, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and then the revolution. Uh, we make it very formulaic. In your opinion, what are we missing? What subtleties are we passing over by sticking to this pretty rigid framework? Well, I, I think it's a good point, and it becomes especially true when we get to the war because it's so easy to talk about the big battles. But I'm sitting here talking to you tonight from South Carolina where it's these tiny little skirmishes that had such an impact. So I think that's going to be true during the war, but people don't remember to talk about during the, the run-up to the war that, yes, the red letter dates are important, but there are these long-term things going on at the same time. And I'll go all the way back, since you asked the question from, from those specific events, I'll go all the way back to the 1730s because the historian Patricia Bonamy persuades me that the growth of evangelical religion, uh, the, the beginning of the, the real, beyond Rhode Island, the beginning of the, the Baptist church and the split in the Puritans between old lights and these evangelical new lights. And within the Presbyterians, there's the new side and the old side uh, and so forth. People are, um, are discovering that they could do something they'd never thought they could do before, which is choose their own minister. And, to summarize Bonamy's complex book in a, in a sentence, I think people go from saying, well, wait a minute, if we can choose our minister, we can choose our prime minister uh, as well. And so, or as T.H. Breen called it, there's this um, logic of choice that, that you can make choices. And again, I'm not saying that the colonists were the ones taking the initiative in the revolution parliament was, but the colonists uh, are resisting in a way they might not have if 
they hadn't, as many of them believed, had God on their side. And at the same time that that long-term trend is happening of uh, religious awakening, there's another long-term trend that's going on that's sort of the opposite of that and very much in contention with that. And that, of course, is the Enlightenment. So you have people like Thomas Jefferson, whose use of the Christian Bible was to cut it up. That is, he went through the New Testament and cut out all of the miracles and then sewed the book back together. That's the Jefferson Bible, because he believed in the teachings of Jesus Christ, but he didn't believe there was such thing as, as miracles. Now, if I started cutting up my family Bible, you know, my brothers and sisters would be pretty angry as well they should. But that's, to me, the confidence, or you could say arrogance, that the Enlightenment imparts to a lot of people, that they felt entitled to do that. And, and you can see there's going to be a natural conflict, and it really blows up in the early 19th century between Enlightenment rationalist figures like Thomas Jefferson that are all about reason and the emotional faith-based community of evangelicals. That's going to be a big conflict into the 19th century, and it's one that's with us still today. But in the 18th century, it gave both of these groups confidence, the, the confidence to take on, in this case, the most powerful empire in the history of the Atlantic world. Woody, we could spend hours discussing the American Revolution uh, as, a, as a wartime experience. Um, but in your mind, when, when you talk about the revolution, uh, what are the, some of the things in this book that might be unique to you, uh, kind of fresh, original interpretations that, that you offer? Yeah. Some people may think some of my interpretations are a little too unique. But for instance, I am persuaded by William Howe that the war was America's to lose. That is, he was the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775. Everybody knows that, and that it was a British victory by the 18th century definition, because on the third try, they captured the hill and sent the Americans scurrying down the hill and off the Charlestown Peninsula north of Boston. So he's the hero of that battle. But three days later, he wrote a letter saying, in essence, we Brits, there's no way we can win this war because it cost me 50% casualties to take Breed's Hill. It actually was. We called it Bunker Hill. It took me, uh, we had 50% casualties. The Americans ran away. And then what did they do? They entrenched themselves on Prospect Hill and Winter Hill behind it. And it's going to take us 50% casualties to capture those hills as well. And whether he was right about that prediction, we don't know because he never did try to take those hills because he became convinced right after this victory when everybody's basically lifting him up on their shoulders uh, as, a, as the hero, he's saying, we can't win this war. And I think there's some real truth to that. Uh, everybody, once they became commander in chief, how himself later did in November of 75, I think it was, uh, and then Henry Clinton took over him in June of 1778. They all come into the job ready to fight. But then as soon as they look around, they see this war is not winnable. And then they find excuses to not fight. I mean, look at how 
1777, he wanted to attack Philadelphia. He was only about 100 miles from Philly in North New Jersey. But what's the route he took to attack Philadelphia? He sailed down to Chesapeake Bay uh, and came, um, came went all the way around towards near Norfolk, Virginia now, and then back up the bay, a journey of hundreds of miles, uh, all because he didn't want to cross the Delaware River under fire. Um, because he didn't, he knew that crossing rivers was just like going up mountains or going up hills uh, and fighting entrenched people on top of a hill. You've got entrenched people shooting at you as you cross a river, and in, in a frontal assault, you're just going to get decimated. That's, and I, you know, we all think it was insane what Hal did in this circuitous route to Philadelphia, but there was a logic behind it, which was um, he did not want any more frontal assaults. Um, and also, I think there's a real pessimism in all of the British generals, starting with Gage, that this is not going to be a winnable war. You've got politicians back in London, including some former military officers, saying, oh, this will be easy. We can smash these guys in nine days. But the guys on the ground are saying it's not winnable. So that's, that's one of my main themes is, is the British figured out early on the Americans were going to win. And then the great mystery that I pursue throughout the book is why did it take George Washington so long to figure that out? Because he came into the war, you know, he arrived in Cambridge on July 2nd, 1775, to be their first commander in chief of this brand new Continental Army. And he arrived thinking, okay, we're outside Boston, the British are in Boston, Boston, almost an island, but the way we're going to win is to launch an amphibious assault once the Charles River froze. Okay, we'll, we'll run across the ice. We've, we've got to attack Boston and defeat the British in Boston. And that was the only form of victory that he or almost anybody could imagine was to go on the offense. And he was getting pressure, as he later acknowledged, from what he called chimney corner heroes, which, you know, would be the 18th century equivalent of of Monday morning quarterbacks. Ah, this is easy. Just just armchair armchair quarterback, uh, armchair generals. You could, this is easy. Go for it. And Congress sent delegations that basically said to him, "How come you haven't captured Boston yet?" And he did eventually devise this plan. Everybody knows about him putting troops on on Dorchester Heights on March fourth, seventeen seventy six, and that was enough to drive the British out of Boston. But the funny thing about that is Washington's description of the whole Dorchester Heights episode was the word he used was his disappointment because he didn't want the British to leave. He wanted them to stay and fight him. So his, his thought was, we'll put troops on Dorchester Heights. General Howe will have to send about half of his army out of Boston up Dorchester Heights to try to take it back. His army will therefore be depleted down to 50% strength, and that's when I can row my soldiers across the Charles River from Cambridge to Boston and capture Boston. That's really what he really what he wanted to do was to go on the offensive. And so, how uh, really tricked Boston, uh, tricked Washington in a way, or disappointed him by passing up that fight because he didn't want another frontal assault up the hill. And so. After Howe left, and this is my main point, Brady, Washington, having already been inoculated against smallpox, he was one of the first 
who could go into Boston. And he saw that the British had fortified it more heavily than you can imagine. They'd done bear raids across the streets. They were ready for house-to-house fighting. And he described Boston as almost impregnable, meaning that had he gotten his druthers of had he been able to launch that frontal assault across the water on Boston, then uh, his army very likely would have been decimated. Um, And so there's a sense in which the Continental Army was saved by the departure of the British, and certainly Washington was saved by that. The interesting thing about him for the rest of the war, the Continentals took New York, I'm sorry, the British took New York City on September 15, 1776, and Washington spent the rest of the war planning amphibious assaults on New York, about 12 of them by my account. But the amazing thing is, and, and I mean, they got as far as putting the, the soldiers in the rowboats ready to row across the East River and the Hudson River to attack New York. They got that far several times, and yet they never actually attacked New York. And I think it's, it was crucial for the American victory that they never did, because I think if they had, they would have suffered a terrible defeat. As you know, the British controlled the water around New York during that whole period as well. They would have suffered a terrible defeat, and that might have discouraged Americans enough to want to negotiate peace with the British. And so I think Washington's greatest contribution to the American victory was not acting on his own aggressive instinct by attacking the British in in New York. What do you live in South Carolina? You're very familiar with a lot of these stories, but a lot of people have been discussing over the last few decades the American Revolution as a civil war. Uh, do you think it was a civil war? And if so, how does this reshape our view of the conflict? I absolutely do agree that the Revolutionary War was a civil war, more so in some places than others. Um, but maybe least of all in places like New England, where there were a few loyalists, but they were in the minority, but very much so in New Jersey. You really see that in 1776 and 1777, and here in South Carolina, right from 1775 on through to the end. It's important to remember that it's a civil war, not only for whites, but for Native Americans and African Americans as well. In general, this is only a generalization, but in general, if you were African-American and you participated in the war in the South, then you were more likely to fight on the British side. Formally, at least, the Southern states did not enlist African-Americans. Now, lots of of guys participating in this backcountry civil war that you were talking about, uh, including uh, Marion and um, and Sumter did have a few uh, African Americans in their bands, but but the official policy south of the Potomac River was no uh, enslaved people in the army. So in general, my point is, in the South, hundreds of African Americans, probably thousands, fought in the war, but they fought on the British side. On the other hand, in the North, um, it was vast, the vast majority of African Americans who fought 
in the Revolutionary War fought on the American side. For instance, Rhode Island formed a regiment that was almost exclusively African-American. And so you had blacks fighting against blacks. You see that at Yorktown, where you had James Armstead Lafayette disguising himself as a, as a, the Americans thought he was spying for them. He was actually spying, uh, uh, let's say there was another guy who was actually spying for the British. Um, and, and, and so there's a whole lot of spy versus spy going on, as well as people fighting and shooting each other who are African-Americans. So it's, it's one way we don't think of the Revolutionary War, but it was an African-American Revolutionary War. And of course it was for Native Americans. Most of those nations tried to stay out of the war, but got drawn into it, forced to choose one side or the other. Um, and it continued some battles that have been going on among Native nations before anyway. But the the most tragic element of it you see is that it was an Iroquois civil war. That is, there were the six nations of the Iroquois, and they ended up fighting each other. Um, the, basically, one and a half of the six, that is, the Oneidas, many of the Tuscaroras, and a few from other uh, Iroquois nations, they fight, fought on the American side, but the vast majority of the Iroquois fought on the British side. And so there was a battle at Oriskany that people have heard of um, in August of 1777, where you literally had Iroquois fighting Iroquois. After Oriskany, they really tried hard not to shoot at each other. I mean, they'd be in a battle, but if you're Iroquois and I'm Iroquois and we're on the opposite sides, I'm going to shoot at the white guys with you. You're going to shoot the white guys with me. And we try not to shoot at each other, but, but it's accurately called, I think, by Barbara Graymont, who writes about it. Um, an Iroquois civil war. So my only qualification to was it a civil war is to say yes, as long as we put an S on the end of that war. Before the war, Woody, we see a lot of different people fight this, fight this war on the promise of getting a country of their own at the end. New Englanders, Southern slave owners, frontiersmen, they all do fight, uh, but they, they have very different expectations of what their country should look like when the war's over. Um, what kind of problems do these very different interpretations cause? Yeah, a, a lot of J.A.R. readers know about Joseph Plum Martin. His is the most famous of the um, memoirs of revolutionary soldiers. And one of the saddest things that I ever read, and I have to go back to it pretty often, is his description of the end of the war. So he had enlisted in 76 and he'd fought through uh, seven years to 1783. I think he had a couple of short leaves, but mostly he was, he was fighting that entire time. And so they, they didn't discharge the army. They furloughed them. And the soldiers thought that was some kind of trick because they'd been tricked so many times by the army, not being, uh, paid, not being given their shirts and everything that they'd been promised. Um, it was not actually a trick, the fact that they were being furloughed. The real reason the uh, Americans, the, the, the Congress furloughed them was it was worried that the British were going to carry off um, too many of their slaves. Uh, in fact, the British did carry off 3,000 at least African Americans who'd fought on their side, probably substantially more than that, but that, that's how many we know left New York City in 1783. Anyway, the soldiers, the Continental soldiers are being furloughed, 
and they'd mostly been paid with basically worthless continental currency. And Congress had said, we're going to make that up to you with something called final settlement certificates, bonds, IOUs that say that someday we're going to give you the money to make up for for your losses through this massive, massive hyperinflation. And he said his final settlement certificates um, were basically worthless to him because he needed money right away. And so these speculators descended on the army camps and offered to buy up the soldiers' final settlement certificates, but only at like three cents on the dollar. And he was one of the ones who felt compelled to sell because he needed money to pay his expenses on the way home. Uh, and he wanted, as he said, a suit of clothing so he could look something alike, like himself when he came among his people. And so he sold all of his final settlement certificates, paying him for seven years of service, making this a free country. He sold all of those final settlements and he got just enough money to buy that suit of clothing and his expenses on the way home. And that was it. And guys like him got home. And then what did Congress and the states do? Levy huge taxes to pay off those war bonds, which had been bought up by speculators. In general, they tripled taxes. And imagine if you're in my taxes were tripled. It would not only hurt you and me individually, I'd certainly have to sell. Uh, we'd have to sell our, our house and our cars just to pay those those incredibly high taxes. But it would also throw the economy into a recession. And that's what happened. Um, and in response to that, farmers, we all know about Shea's Rebellion in Massachusetts, were farmers, and I think it was much more of a tax revolt than people realize. Some of the critics of it said, oh, these are debtors who just don't want to pay their debts. But if you read what the, 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 all of the town petitions that culminated in Shays' Rebellion, that's not what the farmers rebel, who were rebelling said. They said, we cannot pay taxes that are three times higher than what we were used to paying uh, under the British. Uh, you're destroying the economy by taxing us so heavily. So they rebelled not only in Massachusetts, but in all 13 states, there were versions of, of Shays' Rebellion. And so it really was a mess by the, by the end of 1786. You interpret the Constitution in the latter part of this book as an economic guarantee of sorts. Uh, you say it's, 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 it's prudent to evaluate it really uh, as an economic document in many ways. Uh, could you explain this for us? Yes. I mean, I like to play a, a sort of a trick on my students of putting up all of these statements from people pushing the Constitution in 1787 and 1788 when it was finally ratified. All of these statements talking about, oh, this is my favorite clause of the Constitution. And, and these are all quotes from, the, from the, that period. And people saying, oh, if the Constitution only consisted of this one clause, that would be enough for me to favor its adoption. Well, this is a blessed part. This is a perfect part. This is um, the best in the, in the whole constitution. And the game for the students is guess which clause I'm referring to. Some of them have learned in the, in poli-sci classes about the sweeping clause, uh, you know, necessary and proper. No, it's not that. 
uh, oh, is it the First Amendment? No, it can't be that because we're talking about the original Constitution before the Bill of Rights. So it wasn't that. It wasn't gun rights. It was. Oh, that's also in the Bill of Rights. It's. It's. Here's the clause that got the most plaudits from the people pushing the Constitution. The thing that they said they cared the most about. It's the contracts clause, which we kind of think of as a boring thing now. You know, oh yeah, courts enforce contracts, and sometimes you got to sue a contractor who didn't fix what he, whatever he was supposed to fix. But the contract falls at the time was all about relations between debtors and creditors. And at least from the perspective of the people who wrote the Constitution, the real economic crisis of 1786 was that. That is that the state legislatures had become too democratic. In fact, at the Constitutional Conventions, both Alexander Hamilton and Elbridge Gerry described the problem as an excess of democracy. So from the standpoint of the people who wrote the original Constitution without the Bill of Rights, from their standpoint, the problem was the state legislatures that had been developed since 1776 under these state constitutions were overly responsive to the wishes of their voters, which made them irresponsible in the legislation that they adopted. That is, and this is an exaggeration, but this is the kind of attitude that the authors of the Constitution had, was they're basically telling, the legislatures are basically telling farmers they don't have to pay their debts. And so what does the Constitution do? It prohibits the states from impairing the obligation of contracts. It prohibits them from printing paper money. You know, Parliament had allowed the colonies to print paper money so long and crack down on them eventually. But even after the crackdown, said you can still print paper money. You just can't make it legal tender for debts. You know, like it says on the money still today. Um, But but the Constitution goes much farther than Parliament ever did. The Constitution said the state can't print paper money. That's why you and you don't have Pennsylvania paper money. I don't have Virginia uh, paper money. I think actually some people in South Carolina might be stockpiling some South Carolina paper money from 1860s, but that's that's Constitution. That, that, the Constitution prohibits that. And and so my point is that the economic guarantee in the Constitution is Article One, Section 10, which is a clause that hardly anybody thinks about today, but it made sure that if you lent money you could get it back, that your state legislature wouldn't step in to give to protect your debtor from having to pay that debt. And a modern example would be, you know, because of COVID, there have been all this legislation to put a stop on people having to pay their rent. And I understand that from the renter's standpoint, you know, uh, my income, I'm lucky. Uh, I've taught all the way through the pandemic, and so I got paid. But God, can you imagine having to pay if you pay your rent, if you're not getting paid. So you can see why that would be advantageous to a tenant, but then then look at it from the landlord's point of view. Well, it was the same conflict over the Constitution. There were, on the one hand, debtors who were really being pressed by their creditors. On the other hand, there were debtors who were saying, you've got to give me my money. And And I think Charles Beard was wrong when he said, oh, the Constitution was written of, by, and for creditors. It wasn't that. It was the people who wrote the Constitution were saying, we got to make sure that creditors can get their money back, because if they can't, 
they won't lend money again. They won't lend to private individuals because who would, right? If there's a debt holiday saying that no one has to pay their debts, how, why would wealthy people ever lend their money again? And, and it's, it's a concern both for private debts and for the government. If the government doesn't pay its debts, then of course it's bankrupt and, and no one's going to lend money to the government in the future. So my point is that the authors of the Constitution really wrote an economic document. They believed that by providing guarantees for uh, creditors, that they would get money flowing into the economy again and pull us out of the recession. The other point of view, though, was, no, 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 that's not why we're in a recession. It's not that creditors aren't, can't get their money back. It's that the state legislatures have taxed the economy into a recession by tripling taxes to pay off these war bonds that have been bought up by speculators. So I just try to narrate the story. People have have more heard the framer side than the farmer side. So I play up the farmer side just so that people hear both sides of that story. What do you, what do you hope this book can teach us about the revolutionary era? Well, the, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning that as Carl Becker said, yes, it was a battle for home rule, but it was also a struggle for home, for overrule who rule at home. And actually it was many, many struggles. So I would the first thing I'd say is the revolution was so much more interesting than what we were taught in grade school, you know, which was the, the red coats versus the embattled farmers. It was that, but it was so much more than that. And a lot of people use this word describing my book as, Oh, this you're showing the revolution as messier uh, than it was. I got a great email from someone saying, this is like going from a 50-piece jigsaw puzzle to a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And I think he made it as a compliment, but I t- I'll take it as one that um, – and it makes me excited to think that there's a whole lot more to learn uh, about it because of, there's so many – I think, as you put it, so many different moving parts and so much going on uh, at once. And out of that, you know, we start off with a Declaration of Independence that's mostly – a, um, a secession document, but um, the first person to quote the Declaration of Independence saying created equal was a black man serving in the Continental Army. And in fact, other black and white abolitionists took the lead in shifting the meaning of the Declaration of Independence from secession document to universal declaration of human rights. And, and so there's all these sides to the revolution that contribute to the country that we have today that that I think I hope people will share my excite, excitement at seeing these hidden sides of the revolution that end up being just as important as what John Hancock or George Washington was doing. Woody Holton, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.